Hello, it's Wednesday, December 7th, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-ho. The unionized trucker strike has now reached day 14. Concrete truck and pump operators, as well as parcel delivery workers, have pledged to launch their own collective action in support. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Later for our in-depth, we'll connect with a reporter in Beijing to find out more about China easing its strict COVID-19 policies amid recent public unrest. And then later for Korea Book Club, we'll look at a classic work about a soldier in the 1940s who flees the Japanese military by becoming a Buddhist monk. Let's begin Korea 24. The two-week mark has been reached in the unionised trucker strike across the nation. And today, Wednesday, unions representing the nation's concrete truck and pump operators, as well as parcel delivery workers, pledged to launch their own collective action in support of the truckers. Our KBS World Radio news editor, Kuhi Jin, joins us in the studio now to give us the latest on the walkout and our other headlines of the day. Hijin, hello. Hello, Jangle. So it seems the government and the striking workers are still nowhere near a compromise as the government filed its first legal action regarding a trucker who has failed to adhere to a back-to-work order. Can you first give us the latest on the walkouts and demonstrations? Well, the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions estimated that some 20,000 members gathered at 15 locations nationwide on Tuesday to stage rallies in support of a general strike by unionised workers. Police, however, placed the combined total at around 5,000. Some 2,500 unionised construction workers, mostly ready-mix concrete truck drivers, and pump operators in the South Gyeongsang region announced that they will walk out from Thursday. And starting next Monday, 1,500 unionised parcel delivery workers will likely follow suit. The collective stoppage will likely hamper construction at apartments and infrastructure sites uh, after construction workers in the Busan, Ulsan and South Gyeongsang regions walked out on Monday. The KCTU and the Korean Public Service and Transport Workers Union, meanwhile, sent a letter urging the International Labour Organization, or ILO, to further intervene in Seoul's return-to-work order, defining it as a form of oppression. Now, this follows the ILO's uh, secretariat's earlier request uh, for the South Korean government to comment on the ongoing labour situation. While the cargo truckers' solidarity has requested an administrative court to cancel the government order, the National Human Rights Commission rejected the union's petition for the watchdog to advise the government to scrap its directive. Meanwhile, Transport Minister Won Hee-ryong urged union union leaders to swiftly call off the ongoing strike. Uh, The government also took its first legal action against a trucker who hasn't uh, complied with its uh, order to return to work. Can you elaborate? Yes, of course. Uh, The Transport Minister has made the call on Wednesday while inspecting the impact of the strike during a visit to 
Postco's Pohang Steel Works in the country's southeastern port city. The government uh, will make use of its return to work order only as a last resort, he said. Still, he noted the government needs to enforce the order to quickly resume deliveries. He added that the cabinet will likely convene on Wednesday or Thursday, suggesting that the government is reviewing the possibility of invoking yet another invoking, sorry, yet another order. Some 492 truckers in the cement industry returned to work as of Tuesday. Following the government issued order um, earlier, affected uh, industries estimated that the work stoppages halted 3.5 trillion won in shipments in the five major industries of steel, petrochemicals, refined oil, cement and automobiles. And the government filed a police complaint, as you said, against a striking cement trucker who failed to comply with the return to work order and also requested administrative measures be taken by local authorities. It is the first punitive action related to non-compliance with its order. Okay, we'll leave those stories there and turn to the latest on the residual mask mandates here in Korea related to the COVID-19 pandemic, of course. Mm -hmm. The government will decide by the end of this month whether to lift its regulations on wearing masks indoors. Uh, So what has been revealed so far? Well, Interior and Safety Minister Lee Sang-min announced on uh, the plan on Wednesday uh, while chairing a meeting of the Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasures Headquarters. His remarks came uh, as the city of Daejeon and South Chungcheong province are considering moves to lift the mandate locally. The minister stressed the utmost importance of maintaining a consistent quarantine system nationwide in light of forecasts that the final hurdle of the COVID-19 pandemic is expected in the winter. He said local governments should continue to make decisions on key measures such as indoor mask mandates in consultation with the Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasure Headquarters. He said that although the number of COVID-19 cases dropped slightly last week after rising for six weeks, uncertainties still remain. He cited the reproduction index or the number of infections caused by a single patient standing at over one for seven straight weeks, while the new daily caseload uh, reached the highest figure for a Wednesday in 12 weeks. South Korea's new COVID-19 cases stayed above 70,000 for a second day on Wednesday, reporting 74,714 new infections, bringing the total caseload to 27,483,000. Okay, let's turn now to clashes between rival parties at the National Assembly. The main opposition Democratic Party, which holds a majority in Parliament, has decided to push for a motion to dismiss Interior Minister Lee Sang-min as planned. So what can you tell us? Well, DP's uh, floor spokesperson Lee Soo-jin said the party reached its decision in a general meeting on Wednesday, seeking a referendum to make Eve take responsibility for a deadly crowd crush in Itaewon by submitting either a dismissal or an impeachment motion to the National Assembly. Noting the lawmaker's support for the minister's dismissal, the spokesperson warned that if the president does not accept it, its proposal, the DP will go on to submit a motion to impeach the senior official. The DP introduced its motion on November the 30th. 
Now, if it is flawed as an agenda during Thursday's plenary session, it can be approved on Friday. DP's move will likely trigger partisan clashes that will hamper negotiations for next year's budget bill. In other news, President Yoon Suk-yeol called on the South Korean military to boost its conventional warfare capabilities to overwhelm North Korea. He was speaking to newly appointed senior military brass in his office in Yongsan on Wednesday. Can you tell us more? Well, Yun uh, invited the new Marine Corps commandant, uh, Lieutenant General Kim Gehwan, and other new lieutenant generals to his office. The commander-in-chief told his generals to ensure that the South Korean military overpowers North Korea with conventional capabilities, while the nation relies on its allies' dominant nuclear capabilities to deal with the North's arsenal. Yun said the nation now faces its most grave security threat and urged his commanders to eliminate security risks for the Korean economy and public livelihood. Meanwhile, in North Korea, the regime's rubber stamp Supreme People's Assembly will hold a meeting next month to discuss next year's budget and other issues. Well, the North's official mouthpiece, Korean Central News Agency, said on Wednesday the eighth session of the 14th SBA will take place on January 17th in Pyongyang. The KCNA said the planned meeting will discuss state budgets and projects for next year, as well as organizational matters. The Supreme People's Assembly is nominally the highest lawmaking body under the North Korean constitution, but effectively uh, serves as a rubber stamp parliament. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. While the rest of the world has been living with COVID-19 for some time now, China had been sticking to its strict zero-COVID policy, locking down areas where there were positive cases. However, following a tragic fire at a lockdown apartment complex that led to 10 deaths, there have been mass protests against the government's policy, some even calling for Chinese President Xi Jinping to step down. Meanwhile, it also seems the government has started to ease some of the strict measures. To discuss more about the protests and where China's zero-COVID policy is headed, Jonathan Cheng, the China Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal, joins us over the line. Mr Cheng, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for being on the show today. Can you first bring us up to speed on the current COVID-19 situation in China? Sure. So actually, just uh, about an hour or two ago, um, we got new... Um, measures, uh, things they basically uh, decided that they're going to um, further loosen all sorts of requirements and restrictions across the country. Mm. Um, and uh, this has been something that, uh, you know, has been part of a process that the protests you mentioned happened late last month, so about two weeks ago now. And, uh, and since then, we've started to see incremental shifts all around. But 
now it looks like they're taking the biggest steps uh, of all. And, and so whether or not this is related to the protests or not is, is hard to say. But right now, uh, requirements for virus testing, for scanning QR codes to get into restaurants and malls and stores are now going to be scrapped. And uh, even traveling between cities right now, you no longer need to have a negative test to be able to go between different cities, which was, you know, something, of course, that, that, that's been needed for the last three years. Right. So we are seeing a wholesale shift, it seems, in how the government deals with the COVID-19 situation. Uh, can you also update us on uh, the general COVID situation in China? For example, uh, how many cases there are and uh, what the situation looks like across the country? Well, the case count is is still very high by Chinese standards. We're talking about roughly 30,000 a day. I mean, I know it's not very high by Korean standards at the peak or, or many other countries, especially given how many people there are in China. But it was very high by Chinese standards. Now, when I say the numbers are coming down, that's, of course, uh, a reflection of the fact that less testing is happening because PCR testing, which has sort of been this bedrock foundation of how China has approached COVID, that's going away really quickly. And uh, I can tell you that just around Beijing, it's very hard to find a place to go do a PCR test now. Whereas, you know, uh, if you had asked me two months ago, I could have told you five places within a five minute walk that I could have gone to get a free COVID test. So if fewer people are testing, then you're going to get fewer positives. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the, that the virus, of course, is, is, is spreading less. It's just that we know less about it. Right. So until very recently, the Chinese government had kept a very strict uh, zero COVID policy, uh, so much so that when a deadly fire broke out in an apartment complex in late November in Urumqi, Xinjiang province, it prompted people to take to the streets as they argued that the deaths of uh, 10 people were due to the government's lockdown measures. Residents were reportedly not able to escape quickly enough and firefighters struggled to get close to the building. Uh, let's talk about that incident a bit more. Mr Chen, can you tell us what is, else is known about that incident and uh, give us an idea of what usually happens to a building under lockdown? Sure. So, first of all, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that I... I myself and no other foreign journalist has been able to make it to Urumqi because of these strict uh, measures. Basically, it's almost impossible to go there right now. Um, it, it was always difficult in the past because of other issues around Xinjiang, but, but especially so during COVID. But what we do know from talking to people who were in the building, um, who had loved ones who died, um, there were screenshots of... Um, you know, messaging chats that came out from that. Effectively, what happened, I think, is that the building was blocked and locked down. I mean, there were there were cars that were parked around the building. Some of them hadn't moved for a very long time because um, because of COVID and, and people weren't coming and going. And so when the fire truck was trying to get there, uh, the cars couldn't be removed. And in, in some cases, the cars were, you know, the, the engines of the cars um, couldn't be restarted right away. So you had problems like that. At the same time, people couldn't leave because in a lot of these um, lockdowns of entire buildings, you'll see elevators shut down and you'll have someone guarding the front gate. Most of the most of the doors will be locked shut. So you don't have a lot of options. Um, again, the, the, the specific details of what happened here, I mean, it, it's it's 
it, it may not be possible to know with 100% certainty, but I don't think that that was what was really driving the protest because I think a lot of people put themselves in that situation and said, that could be me because I've been locked down. Everyone's been locked down at some point in China. They know how these lockdowns tend to go. Right. And can you give us a bit more of a picture of what the situation looked like uh, across the country before they eased the restrictions? What were some of the uh, COVID-19 uh, restrictions like uh, that have been in place until recently? Well, you know, in some cases, it probably just looked a whole lot like what Seoul must have been like in 2020. The only difference is that China never stopped um, conducting these these sort of restrictions. And so uh, if I were to go outside, I basically wouldn't be able to set foot in any restaurant, cafe, bar, uh, supermarket, almost anything without having to scan a QR code at the entrance, usually guarded by a person with a face mask on, in some cases in a in a hazmat suit. Um, and when you scan the QR code, it will tell the government that you're entering this particular building or this particular space at this time. And also what it will do is it'll also show the person who's standing at the door whether or not you've taken a test in the last 24, 48, 72 hours and whether or not um, you may have been exposed to a positive case. So that's daily life there. If you want to get on the subway, get on the bus, same thing. Um, if you want to travel between different cities, um, then you need to, in most cases, you needed to get a PCR test before you went and you needed to take a PCR test after you got there. So it was just a lot of testing. And 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 if you were in the same venue as somebody who was later found to be positive, you could guarantee that you'd get a lot of phone calls from the local CDC, the, the you know, the disease control people who would be calling you and asking you, mm. oh, what time did you go in? And, who are you with and I'll ask you all sorts of things. And, and in some cases, if they deemed you to be a risk, you'd be locked at home or, or worse, you'd be dragged off to a centralized quarantine facility. Hmm. Yes, yeah, so the measures were clearly far stricter and lasted far longer than many other countries. Why has she been pushing for such a strict zero COVID policy until now? Well, I think, I think, partly because China was the first country to really experience COVID with the Wuhan break, outbreak in um, early 2020. Um, I think, you know, the methods that they used there worked. And so I think the, the thought was, um, if, it, if, it, if it isn't broken, uh, don't fix it. And we're going to keep doing this. And especially when they saw the rest of the world um, take a different approach and see COVID tear through you know, Brazil or Italy or India or Korea, of course, had big waves as well in the US. Um, I think China felt very vindicated in its approach. And I think Xi Jinping came to see it as a, um, a reflection of superior Chinese government governance. Like this is how our society works. We can mobilize the entire population to fight this thing mm. with our you know, collective will. And, um, you know, when the opportunity came to have mRNA vaccines, China has not approved any of them. So to this day, nobody in um, China, except for people who have been able to travel outside or diplomats or a couple other um, special groups, basically nobody here has any mRNA vaccines. So, um, so you have that problem, which means that you kind of have to then continue with the lockdown method because, uh, right now, keep in mind, with 1.4 billion people here, uh, very few people have ever gotten COVID, which means that very few people have natural immunity. And if you don't have natural immunity and if you don't have an mRNA vaccine, then if COVID does tear through the population here, you will see a big surge in cases. And I think that's part of the consideration.
Right. And then amid the growing frustration over the stringent measures and the deadly fire we talked about in Xinjiang earlier, protests erupted and they seemed to quickly spread across the country as well. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about the protests? How widespread were they? Yeah, well, the protests, it's hard to know exactly where they all were because the Chinese government um, suppressed um, word of them. But from social media, and uh, uh, we were able to see in Beijing, in Shanghai, in Guangzhou, in Wuhan, in Zhengzhou, um, in Chengdu. That's that's a lot of cities, and these are all very, very big cities, all 10, 15, 20 million people or more, um, all of them very important economically um, and spread out across the country. So it was quite remarkable to see all of these cities see protests on the same issue at the same time. I think that's something that we, frankly, have not seen in 25 years or more in China. Right. And then came former Chinese President uh, Jiang Zemin's death. Eyes were all on China to see whether that death would perhaps give rise to further dissent. Some have even been comparing the recent anti-government protests to the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. What do you make of this view? And uh, what do you think the former leader's death would have had, or, uh, the Im- what impact it would have had on the protests? Yeah, I think, I, think, I think a lot of people did make that comparison because it, it is true that the 1989 uh, student demonstrations were not just in Beijing, but across the country. And they did come um, at the same time as the death of a senior leader. In that case, it was Hu Yaobang. And um, I think a lot of people were predicting that we might see the protests take on even more of a confrontational tone after Jiang Zemin's death. I think what happened instead was something completely different. And I think that's partly because of all of these easing measures that we've seen. Mm. I think the government has reacted in a way that has told the protesters we're listening. Um, at the same time, uh, there's, a, there's a stick to go with the carrot, and that is that China does have very, very strong surveillance uh, systems, and it does have a lot of manpower when it comes to um, public security. And so every one of these places where there were protests, um, I walked by several of them uh, in the days afterwards, and you could see the police presence was very, 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 very thick. And uh, to the point where if, if, if you had more than five or six people gathered at one time, you could bet that the police were going to scatter them. So there really was no way for any of this to happen. So I, I'd sort of say it was a combination of carrot and stick, but I think many people who made that parallel, I think, were thinking that maybe this might go in a different direction, but hmm. perhaps Beijing saw those risks as well and acted differently than they did back in 1989. Right. So we've come to this point now where China has begun relaxing uh, some measures. For example, people with uh, asymptomatic or mild COVID will be able to quarantine at home rather than in state facilities with self-testing at home. PCR test requirements for most public venues have been scrapped, except hospitals and schools. Uh, How significant do you think these relaxing of measures are? Well, I think it's very significant on paper. I think the real question that everyone is asking in China is whether or not this will really be implemented at the ground level. Um, And, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that even though China, we often see it as a country where you have a, a very powerful central government that's able to impose its will on the people. It's a huge, huge country. And every province, every city, every town, every community, every block has slightly different implementation. And, and that's been true for the last three years. It hasn't been uniform. Um, there are lots of loopholes. And 
lots of situations where the local authorities will go in the opposite direction and they'll enforce things more tightly than the letter of the law says. And so I think what we're going to see is um, definitely a loosening, but the question is uh, whether or not it um, is implemented evenly. And then if we start to see a massive surge in cases from all these people suddenly starting to go out and spend time outside and in restaurants and so on, what happens if we really start to see the hospitals fill up and we start to see the health system get overwhelmed? Is the government then going to backtrack yet again? That's mm. that's something, of course, we've seen in almost every country. Korea has seen this as well. I mean, every time you open up, you can mm. guarantee that there will be a wave. Mm. Has the government officially stated that they are shifting away from zero COVID policy? And you also mentioned the risks in, in a possible surge in infections. How real do you think those risks are? Yeah, I'll take the second question first. The, the, the risk of a surge in infections is obviously very high. Um, science has told us for the last three winters um, that people will get COVID more easily when they're indoors and when it's cold outside. Um, and now we also know, of course, from Korea and from the U.S. and every other country that when there's an unlocking, people go out a lot more. And when people go out a lot more, then there's a lot more chance for spread. So I think the risk of a resurgence is definitely very high. Um, and so, you know, I think one challenge for the government has been to balance this message to say, yes, we're listening. Yes, we're loosening measures. Yes, we understand the toll that this has taken on the economy. However, we have to continue to remain vigilant. Now, that message, I think, is going to be overshadowed by the exuberance of people finally be able, being able to go out. But, but I think that will really be the challenge for officials going forward is balancing those two messages. We want you to be economically productive mm. and we want you to go out, but, but we also need you to be vigilant. And so I, I think we're going to see a lot, of, uh, a lot of twists and turns up ahead. Right, but no official statement saying that they're stepping away or easing away from zero COVID. No, I mean, I think I think it would be, it's possible it would be too much of a loss of face. And it, it's also possible that it would just be too dangerous to tell people we're getting rid of this policy because then people may go swing all the way in the other direction and become too careless. So um, again, they're trying to sort of have it both ways and say, we're still keeping this policy, but we're loosening things and fine-tuning things in such a way that, that it makes life easier and more 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 bearable for mm. everyone. Interesting. Well, we'll see how the situation plays out in China. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. We've been speaking to Jonathan Cheng from the Wall Street Journal in Beijing. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 10.35 points, or 0.43% on Wednesday, closing the day at 2,382.81. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 1.30 points, or 0.18%, closing the day at 718.14. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 2.91 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,321.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Korea Trending, our daily segment looking at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. 
And for the second day in a row, we have with us Diane Yu to bring us those stories. Diane, hello. It's good to see you again. Hello, Django. It's good to see you again. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? First, we'll talk about how South Korea's age counting system is expected to see a big change next year. We'll also learn about the two South Koreans who were included on the BBC's list of 100 inspiring and influential women for 2022. Finally, we'll find out how Morocco made history at the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Okay, let's start with that first story then. And it's an update to a story that we have talked about on the show before. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more? Right. From uh, as early as next year, international age is set to become the norm for all judicial and administrative purposes in South Korea. The National Assembly's Legislation and Judiciary Committee on Wednesday approved revisions to the relevant civil and administrative laws. The revisions sought to unify the legal and social age system in the country into the standard international system. Yes, we've talked on our show previously about how especially foreigners often find the so-called Korean age system confusing. Uh, For those who are not familiar with this term, the Korean age system, can you give us an explanation? Of course. The unique Korean age system counts as a a newborn as being one year old at birth. Because everyone becomes a year older at the start of a new year on January 1st, a baby born on December 31st would turn two on New Year's Day. And there are two other ways age is calculated in South Korea, one of which is the international age that many Western countries use. This is where the years and months a person has lived since birth is counted. Another way is by subtracting the year the person was born from the current year. This system is used in laws relating to military service and youth protection. Right. So, for example, if you're born in the year 1986, you'd be 36 years old in international age. But in Korea, uh, anyone born in that year would be considered 37 years old. Uh, But adopting the international age system, that was actually one of uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol's campaign pledges, right? That's correct. During his campaign days, Yoon had said he'll seek to make the international age the standard for legal age, citing that such a system is already being used as the norm in courts, hospitals, and public offices. Lee Yong-ho, who served as a senior official of the transition team's division on judicial administration back in April, had said that continued confusion and disputes over the way age is calculated in the nation had brought about unnecessary social and economic costs. Such costs were seen in administrative services, including social welfare services. And the bill is likely to be passed during a plenary session of the National Assembly set to be held on Thursday and Friday of this week. It will likely become law six months after promulgation. Right, so this could be the start of a significant shift in Korean society mm-hmm. and culture uh, once it becomes adopted at the legal and judicial level. We'll see if it spreads to everyday life in Korea as well. Right. Well, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? The British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, has included two South Koreans in its list of 100 inspiring and influential women from around the world for 2022. Britain's national broadcaster revealed the list on its website on Tuesday, which put 25 women in four categories, politics and education, culture and sports, activism and advocacy, and health and science. The BBC included the former co-interim leader of the main opposition Democratic Party, Park Ji-hyun, on the list, describing her as a political reformer. Yes, she initially came to be known by the public as the college student reporter who helped the nth room incident 
bring that in, bring that into the open, right? Right, that's correct. And the broadcaster pointed the fact that fact out, noting that Park anonymously helped bust one of the South Korea's biggest online sex crime rings, known as the Nth Rooms. The report said, though Park currently has no official role since resigning from the co-chair post in June, she remains committed to pushing for gender equality in politics. Yes, so she was one of the college student reporters who were involved in that story. And she's also credited for helping bring a large swathe of young female voters to vote for the DP candidate mm-hmm. Lee Jae-myung in the presidential elections. Although, ultimately, of course, it was not enough. Right. Uh, she is set to be a name to watch out for in the future as well. Uh, who's the other South Korean uh, woman that was added to this year's list? That would be CJENM Vice Chairwoman Lee Mi-kyung. The report said that as a passionate supporter of the arts... E is leading a Korean cultural wave. It described E as a driving force behind K-pop's global success and an architect of the music festival KCON. It also noted that she is an executive producer of the film Parasite, the first foreign language film to win an Oscar for Best Picture. E was nominated for a spot on the list by the Hollywood actress Rebel Wilson. Yes, she's known uh, affectionately as Mickey Lee in the industry as well. Right. She was one of the people who spoke at the Oscars on stage mm-hmm. after Parasite won a Best Picture, which is, I'm sure, where many people saw her as well. Right. Uh, it's not the first time for Koreans to ever make this annual BBC list, right? Right. In 2020, the BBC included the former commissioner of the Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency, Jung Eun-kyung, in the list, highly recognizing Jung's role in South Korea's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor of Forensic Psychology at Gyeonggi University, Lee Soo-jung, was put on the list in 2019. The broadcaster noted that Lee worked on numerous high-profile murder cases in Korea and has challenged the legal system, helping to introduce an anti-stalking bill. Yeah, so Park ji and Mickey Lee joining quite an exclusive club indeed. Right. Okay, let's move on to our final story for today. What do you have for us? So Morocco made history at the 2022 FIFA World Cup on Tuesday local time by becoming the first Arab nation and fourth from Africa ever to reach the quarterfinals. The Atlas Lions defeated 2010 world champion Spain 3-0 on penalties after it finished 0-0 draw in extra time of the round of 16 match at the Education City Stadium in El Rayyan. Take note that Morocco is also the only country from outside Europe or South America to make it to the last eight in Qatar. Yes, after a string of upsets in the group stages, the top 16 has been rather more predictable, right. except this result mm-hmm. with Morocco. Uh, this wasn't the first time for Morocco to play in the round of 16, was it? It was actually their second time after having competed in the knockout stage in the 1986 World Cup. The first time the nation competed in the tournament was in 1970. The most notable player of Tuesday's match was Morocco's Ashraf Hakimi, who was born in Madrid and previously played for the Spanish giants Real Madrid. He scored the winning penalty in the shootout. Mm. The Atlas Lions will now seek to become the first African nation to ever reach the semifinals when they face Portugal on Saturday local time and the quarterfinals. Yes, yeah, so many were left stunned not only by Morocco's victory, but also by the fact that they were able to beat such a footballing heavyweight in Spain. That's correct. Tuesday marked the second consecutive time for Spain to be knocked out of the World Cup by penalties in the last 16. Initially, Spain controlled the match with an overwhelming edge in possession and had a few close attempts on goal, but they were unable to score from the spot in the shootout. Yes, so Morocco will be taking on Portugal next in the quarterfinals. We'll see if they can continue to make history. Yes. That's all for today's career trending. Thank you for the stories, Diane, and I believe we'll be seeing you again tomorrow as well. See you yes. then. See you tomorrow.
Next up, it's a Korea Book Club, our weekly segment exploring the world of Korean literature, usually through works available in translation and beyond. And for that, so we are joined by our literary critic, Barry Welsh, as ever. Barry, hello. It's great to see you. Yes, good evening. Okay, so what are you introducing to our listeners today? So today we're reviewing a short story called Tung Shin Bul by Kim Dong Ni and translated by Sol Sun Bong. And it was initially published back uh, in 1961 in Korea. The English translation has been published at least twice. So first it was published in 2002 in the Portable Library of Korean Literature and then again in 2015 as part of the Modern Korean Literature series. So it's quite a notable story. Uh, it's from a very prominent writer who had a fascinating life. So Kim Dong-ni was born in Yongju in 1913. Uh, he was born into a very uh, impoverished family uh, and he'd later write that uh, hunger was his constant companion during his youth. He was constantly hungry. Uh, his elder brother, Kim Pong-bu, was actually a celebrated uh, intellectual who uh, influenced the younger Kim's life. Uh, but I, I guess he's been sort of surpassed in the, the public consciousness by his, his brother now. Uh, and Kim started writing poetry at a very young age. He was published by the time he was 16. And this was the beginning of uh, a long career devoted to literature. He won a, a string of uh, awards. He worked as a professor of literature and creative writing. He was married uh, a few times to other writers. And he led a life generally full of incident until his death in 1990. Uh, and he was interested in lots of things, but people often talk about his work, uh, work in relation to the role of uh, myths, uh, traditions and religions uh, in the lives of Koreans during the 20th century. And that's something we can see in today's story, which is about the impact of Buddhism on a young man in the uh, mid uh, uh, 20th century. Okay, so uh, it's interesting because Buddhism is still very influential in Korean society today, of course, with uh, lots of Koreans identifying as practicing Buddhists. There are uh, many Buddhist temples scattered across the country and an abundance of different orders of Buddhist monks as mm -hmm. well. Uh, it's not uncommon for busy working people to go to Buddhist temples for a few days as well to escape the hectic pace of uh, modern Korean society. So it's interesting to see how uh, it might contrast or not contrast so much in uh, Kim's time. Can you mm -hmm. tell us more then? How does Kim talk about the role of Buddhism in Korean life. Right, yeah, so this uh, story has an immediately engaging uh, premise. Uh, it starts with uh, a young Korean soldier telling us he was a student at a university in Japan when in 1943 he was drafted into the Japanese army. Uh, he's now 20, 22 years old. He's stationed in Nanking and this is not an uncommon story. So many young Korean men uh, you know, at this time were forcibly drafted into the Japanese army uh, they were forced to fight and of course sadly many of these young men uh, died fighting a war they, they didn't want to be in and we've read other uh, stories which uh, t touch on that aspect of the, the, the war as well. Mm. But the young soldier in this story is sure that death is approaching. Uh, his garrison knows that they will soon be sent into combat and like those that have already been sent before uh, they will likely not return. Uh, and he says, most of us harboured a wish that we be detained in Nanking as long as possible because it meant keeping ourselves alive that much longer. So he devises a strategy to escape. But how will he escape? 
Right, so when we say Nanking, we mean Nanking in China, and uh, it is romanized as Nanjing now, I believe, mm, and it's right, yeah. uh, also understand the same Nanjing as in the Nanjing Massacre, the mm -hmm. terrible uh, war crime and atrocity committed by Japanese soldiers uh, during the Second World War period. It took place a few years before when this story takes place, though. Mm -hmm. So it is unrelated, but I guess... Uh, it adds another layer of uh, eeriness to the story as mm -hmm. well. Anyway, going back to the soldier, it is, of course, a difficult situation. De deserters uh, from the army were executed, so uh, this young man is caught between a rock and a hard place, either go into battle where he will almost certainly be killed or try and escape, and if caught, then face execution. So, Barry, what does he do then? Right, so he uh, he learns through some deception that there's a Buddhist monk in Nanjing, Nanking, sorry, uh, and in desperation he plans to present himself to this monk and ask to join uh, the, his Buddhist order. Uh, so one evening he uh, manages to sneak away from his, his camp. Uh, he goes down into the town and introduces himself to this man. He locates him and, and introduces himself. Uh, he's full of doubt. Uh, after all, he's an enemy soldier. He's a, a Korean in the Japanese armor, uh, Japanese army. So why should this uh, this this Chinese monk listen to him at all? But the monk does listen to him, and once he's heard his story, he makes this young man uh, write a promise in blood. So he cuts his finger and he writes a promise in blood, uh, and, and says, "I wanted to be exempted from the offense of life taking and to reside in the merciful world of Buddha forever," uh, and having Having written this in blood, the monk agrees to help the young man escape uh, and leads him or, or has one of his uh, uh, monk colleagues to lead him into the mountains, you know, through this sort of secret uh, hidden path way up into the mountains, away from the Japanese army and ultimately to a hidden Buddhist temple uh, in the mountains where he begins a new life as, as a monk. But having made this escape, he is he's very relieved but as the days uh, and weeks pass he becomes increasingly disturbed by one of the buddhist statues in this temple okay so what is it about this particular statue uh, that disturbs the young man so much. Right, yeah. So uh, so uh, if you've ever visited a temple, one of the many temple, Buddhist temples in Korea, you'll know that there's lots of statues. Uh, and like it is here, there's many statues of Buddha around this temple. Mm. But there's one particular statue that is kept hidden uh, in a room, sort of in this uh, closed room, and only visitors get to go there. Uh, sometimes the visitors do come to the temple and they're given a special audience with this statue. What could be so special about it? His curiosity is ignited and he asks one of the older monks to see it and he's shocked by its appearance. He says it was not the usual image of dignity, holiness and physical perfection. There was something about this Buddha that filled one with a nearly painful feeling of sympathy. It seemed to grimace suffering or pain. I began to feel something choking me. The feeling of shock changed into a feeling of fear. The statue has this massive impact on him you know he feels terror that seems to reach into his his very being mm. uh, and we learn that this statue has a horrible and tragic history it, the statue was once a, a man with with a, a, an awful history who became a monk and the other monks believe became invested with the sacred power uh, this monk ended his life through uh, a ceremony called the soshin kong yang 
uh, meaning that he was saturated in oil for several days and he was set alight. Uh, And this self-immolation lasted for days. And as it lasted, several miracles seemed to happen at the same time. So the rain poured down, but it didn't seem to touch him. Uh, and there was various other you know, sort of mystical occurrences happened at the time when he was burning. And ever since then, monks and visitors have prayed to this immolated statue figure uh, in the hope of experiencing uh, some new miracles. Wow, that's quite a powerful image. And it's quite a turn in the story as well. Yeah. Uh, what do you mm-hmm. think then Kim is saying perhaps about Buddhism or belief in general with this story. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm sure there are many uh, symbols and images uh, that I've not picked up on. You know, I'm not a Buddhist uh, literature scholar, and I'm sure there are many, uh, you know, Buddhist experts who could explain the story and symbolism in more depth and detail. But nevertheless, it's certainly a story that non-scholars of Buddhism can enjoy. It is it is a, a sort of a, a strange story with an eerie kind of power. It's about sacrifice and suffering and the attainment of enlightenment. Uh, how do we reach enlightenment? What is it? What is the role of suffering in life? And how do we exist with our suffering? And these are very deep and heady questions. Mm. Uh, and at the end of the story, there's this very strange little episode at the end of the story. So one of the monks asks to see the finger the young man uh, you know, drew blood from to write his oath at the beginning of the story. And it's not really explained why he asks to see this. You know, what is the, the significance of this or the symbolism of it? It doesn't spell out the answer for us, but it seems to be suggesting that this young man, this desperate young man who fled for his life in the middle of the night, that and perhaps the reader, like this young man, we're all on our way to being this uh, tragic statue of the burning monk uh, hidden in the temple. We are all on the path to enlightenment, but of course, mm. not uh, not there yet. Sure. I think it would be interesting to see if there's any uh, academic analysis mm-hmm. of this text that can uh, fully unpack the layers and perhaps some of the historical context as well, because I think it does sound fascinating. Uh, but today we're going to leave it there. Once again, uh, the book is called Tungshin Bul by Kim Dong Lee, and that was our pick for Korea Book Club this week. Barry, thank you as always. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Okay, take care. This is Swiss flutist Philipp Jund. I am professor of flute at Neuchâtel Conservatory in Switzerland and at Kangam University in Korea. You are listening to Korea 24. It's time now for our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, joins us in the studio now. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jan. Okay, so what's our first story about today? Well, South Korea is one of the leading countries when it comes to cosmetics. There have been many types of innovative products that have come from here. Kim Inyan's article in the Life and Style section of the Korea Herald introduces us to an interesting project where skin moisturizers used by a Joseon princess have been reinterpreted as modern-day cosmetic products. Wow, okay, interesting. Uh, before we talk about the products themselves, who is this Joseon-era princess? That would be Princess Hwa Hyup. She is the daughter of Kim Young-jo of the Joseon dynasty. And she is also the older sister of Crown Prince Sado. 
The article mentions that the cosmetic products are based on research on makeup-related relics that were found in the princess's tomb during a series of excavations conducted between 2015 and 2017. Hmm. All the items are part of a set called Princess Huayup's Porcelain Edition. Okay, then walk us through the items in this set. First is Miango. This is a moisturising balm made of traditional beauty ingredients, such as sweet pumpkin seed oil. Another item is Miangaji, which is a facial massage tool made of white and blue porcelain. The collection comes in white and blue porcelain containers that have flower patterns. Okay, so the products, as you said, are replicated based on research. Yes. This means that people in this day and age are able to experience how a Joseon princess lived, I guess. Exactly. The set is on sale at the National Palace Museum of Korea's Art Shop and the Korea Cultural Heritage Foundation's online shopping mall. It costs around 130 US dollars. Wow, okay, so it's not cheap, not but cheap. Uh, I guess that's the price you have to pay to look like a princess. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Well, we talked on the show about how the K pop girl group Kara made a comeback a week ago after seven years. Dong Sonha's article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times takes a look at how it went. Yes, uh, Kara was uh, hugely successful and popular. For example, uh, the group became the first K-pop girl group to play concert at the Tokyo Dome in Japan, I believe. Right, yes. But it has uh, been a long time since they last had a comeback, right? That's true. Even one of the members of the group, Songyun, said recently that she thought it would be impossible for Kara to make a comeback this time around. The group originally wanted to try small things but ended up releasing an album instead. <laughs> it seems like the comeback has done very well. A YouTube video of the group's performance at the 2022 Mama Awards has over 1.5 million views. Another clip of Kara performing their old hits also has 4 million views. OK, and what about their album, When I Move? Well, according to the article, as of Monday, the album topped the real-time chart on one of the major streaming platforms in Korea called Bugs. It also did well on two other platforms, Melon and Genie. And after the group performed its old songs at the Mama Awards, all the songs climbed back up the charts as well. So it was a nice welcome back for the group on the 15th anniversary of its debut. Yes, and especially after uh, they lost one of their former members as well, Kuhara, who died in 2019, sadly, mm. as well. But it's nice to see the old group back together again. That's why we'll wrap it up for our Morning Edition preview segment. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we call it today today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho. And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>